not we got plenty to talk about there. We just got connected. Here's some music for the audience. We'll get this thing started. company the 10 year after company keeping us uh, on the ball and ushering us into another two-hour session today is the session dated 4 15 22 and it is of course as my old friend ron brown used to say the real april fool's day uh this year has got a lot of uh well interesting interesting uh, conflicts i guess you might say is that the uh the day uh as important as it is to us in the christian faith uh, is also very important to those on the other side of the fence because this is their way that they the day that they celebrate gouging everybody's voluntary contributions the tribute I guess I used to think of it as tribute it's kind of that way tribute is what someone pays to a conquering people and uh, I think we've been conquered at least in the political realm so uh, we'll talk more about that no doubt I want to ask Brent if this uh, uh, of course Brent Winters is our co-host on Fridays and uh, I don't ever remember an April 15th being on Good Friday before it probably was it just it didn't have the uh, the significance to me then that it does now and of course that day now the holy day of retribution has been moved to monday uh because of this quote unquote conflict so that and uh i always remember on good friday the day many years ago in 1964 when i was a puppy in the great city and state of anchorage alaska and we had this little earthquake up there called the Good Friday Earthquake, which uh, I believe is the second or third most powerful earthquake as they've revised the Richter scale on it ever recorded. And uh, I lived through that and uh, have vivid memories of that that I recall often on days like today, the anniversary of it, although it's not the same day because Easter shifts around, of course. So that's important. We got Brent Winters with us. I had a couple of questions to ask him that came up this week, Brent, and just tell the audience. I'm, uh, it came up this week. I had a little snafu and put a uh, Tuesday show in on Tuesday and Wednesday of the replay because of a situation that happened here with me on this end and i'm replacing that 13th the wednesday show right now and those shows this week have been very brisk there's been a this weekend last there's been a lot of good discussion we're seeing a lot of new people come on and we're getting good questions and uh so that's been real productive i thought and uh, otherwise than that brent welcome and uh happy good friday and all of that kind of stuff how you doing this morning oh i'm doing all right roger thank you for your kindness i'm uh I'm so low church, I don't even, oh, I got an idea what Good Friday is, but I don't really care. I guess I don't care because extra biblical holidays uh, have never been a part of my life. And so I don't, I don't deal with them, don't care about them. I know people, they have all these things they do in the, the high liturgical Babylonian systems coming up to Easter, and they do all sorts of things. Well, only thing that's necessary, all these rituals and all that, the only thing that's necessary is just do what God tells you to do. He, there's a couple things he insists upon. 
being possible to do, but he doesn't even order those. He doesn't even order those. They're totally voluntary, of course, and that's the Lord's Supper and uh, baptism. And that's the fact of the matter. That's what the Bible says. If you go outside the Bible, you find all sorts of trash. And it's just trash. It's Jesus junk and stuff that's junk but Jesus' name attached to it. So um, on a good Friday, I say, oh, it's good Friday. I didn't know this good Friday. Uh, like it makes any difference to me. I have to be frank at my age. No, I, it doesn't make any difference except to know except to know that uh, the, the story, the narrative, the record of the Bible of what happened on the days before he was crucified, of course, we don't have a, a blooming clue uh, what the calendar is. And those that argue otherwise are, are misinformed and overly blown up with what they do know. I do know, for instance, even in the day of Jesus Christ, uh, they, they had lost the calendar entirely. Uh, Passover was celebrated on a different day around Galilee than it was around Jerusalem. And in that mix of that confusion of them not knowing what the real calendar is, they lost it. Jesus Christ conducts himself in such a way that he conforms nonetheless to all the prophecies of the Old Testament and meets the requirements uh, during the Lord's Supper, which was before the crucifixion, of course. He meets all the requirements of both places, uh, just so nobody can argue about it. But the but it doesn't really make any difference. The calendar is important. Of course, we got a calendar. That's nice. But to say that we know when the real Sabbath was, the one God established at creation, um, is tomfoolery. It doesn't exist. But the principle exists, and it can be known through the law of God. And isn't it funny? The people that focus so hard on Saturday as opposed to Sunday and vice versa, um, I never hear them talk anything about much about really having delved into what the Sabbath really is, what's it intended for, and what its ramifications are. But anyway, you mentioned Good Friday. Oh, you know, I suppose every Friday is good. All these pagan holidays we have, uh, including the word Friday and Thursday and Wednesday and Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and all the pagan labels we have on them, that's amazing too. You know, the Bible does tell us. This is how far off we are. The Bible tells us that we're forbidden from even mentioning the names or the named authority of any God other than the maker of all things, the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so to even say the name Friday or the word Friday is to violate that commandment. That's how far gone we are and have always been. Of course, the problem now is we're so far gone even more than we were 10 20 50 years ago mm -hmm. we've lost all sense of stability i was talking uh, to a fellow the other day that told me that he never even saw anybody that was divorced until after he was grown where he lived well he had repeated that from another fellow who was well known now deceased who said the same thing well, I, I can remember when it was very seldom where I was from and our little pocket of isolation where I knew of anybody that was divorced. Now, I had there was a, a family member that was divorced, and I knew that very well, but uh, she had separated herself and didn't come around anymore. It was such a scandal. It was, it was uh, overwhelming to her and uh, other people, and it was her fault, by the way, clearly. There was no question about that. That's what she wanted. 
but nonetheless, she wasn't going to live around people that would criticize her for it. And we live in a world now where most uh, or over half the people are divorced. And by the way, this is something that's never mentioned. Uh, 80%, approximately 80% of all divorces are upon the insistence. Well, I'll ask you, Roger, this is madness. Now, who do you think of all the people that get divorced, who insist more often, the man or the woman? I would think the woman does. That's right. The woman more often, well, 80% demands divorce. Uh, that's how far we've gone. The Bible says that later there'll come a time when uh, six, seven women be hanging on to one man to try to have dignity because they recognize finally they don't have the dignity of a husband. And that's where women get dignity. You say, well, Brent, that's your opinion. No, again, it's not my opinion. I have authority for what I'm saying. I'm just repeating what God says. That's the way he designed it. Um, and then, of course, the woman that doesn't have a husband or a father, and there are a lot of those, that's a different matter, and God addresses that situation as well, and they're taken care of. But here we are in the midst of this madness, and what is the uh, answer? Just over the past 10 years, I've come to focus in pretty tight. No matter what else we do, no matter what else we do, the ultimate problem as a fundamental inward matter, inward into the core of the being of this creature we call man, is his slighting, S-L-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, S-L-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. It slights, he slights. So much as slights his maker. He ignores him for days. Even for hours is too much, or minutes. Doesn't is not conscious of his presence. And that's called disrespect. Be like living in a home as a child with uh, parents there and not talking to them for three, four, five, six, seven, eight days at a time. If that's the kind of home you have and that's the way you are with your parents, you're sick. Your relationship is sick. There's something seriously wrong, and somebody needs to do something to adjust to fix it because that won't work as a practical matter. But it won't work as a practical matter with your maker either. You don't talk to him. You don't let him talk to you by looking into what he's got to say to you. Well, there's something wrong. There's something sick. There's something disrespectful. And if there is something disrespectful like that, he holds the option of snuffing you out anytime he wants uh, from this land. Now, again, I have authority for that. That's not my opinion. I don't particularly always like the idea, but that's the fact of the matter. Back to you, Roger. Um, interesting. Brent, I was having this conversation. We had a nice little, got a couple of folks we get together for meals here. Uh, and uh, yesterday, the, there's a, one of them is a female, and Amer they're all American. And she said there's a little neighborhood restaurant, and they have this special meal. It's called a finesca, I believe. And it's a special soup that they make at this time of the year that's got 12 different ingredients in it that represent the 12 disciples and stuff. Uh -huh. And so we went and had, had that little lunch. It's kind of a vegetarian thing. It's very nice, okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, so at, at lunch, we were asking them. Uh, I was asking them. I said, "What if you look back at the 60s, what you just said just stimulated this a minute ago. If you look back at the 60s and the whole upheaval, and uh, that was my time. You know, I was coming out of high school, college, and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. the, well, you're about yours, too. I think you and I are similar age bracket there. Vietnam and all the assassinations and prayer out of the schools and Woodstock and free love and all, all that time frame, which really set us up for where we are now. It was the 
Tavistock Institute's uh, first big tsunami of social engineering that they sent in. Remember now, the they put the capstone on in 54. So they waited about 10 years after the capstone was on before they started sending these shock waves of social engineering through the society. If you look back on that, what can you pick out one single thing out of that whole sequence of events? I know this is kind of impromptu on you that that you consider to be one of the real uh, catalysts of more so than others of the great change. Well, as a practical matter, the 1954 events you're talking about was was uh, decisive. Oh, correct. But it was the capstone. It set every. It's it sealed off their agenda, so then they could really start doing. It. You know, of course, for the audience that doesn't know, we're talking about Brown versus Board of Education, uh, which solidified their plan. And then, as I studied this years ago, I kept saying fifty four, fifty four, fifty four. What else happened in fifty four? You know, the subconscious tugging at you, right? And uh, it finally hit me because every time you ever trace a regulation back, it always ends at the 1954 Internal Revenue Code. And so after Brown versus Board of Education, they couldn't wait. It was 60 days to the day that they put the 1954 Internal Revenue Code in. Now, that signifies the end of the of the setup and the start of the agenda from how they want it to go. Okay, so 10 years later, approximately, all this stuff starts happening with this Tavistock Institute social engineering waves that they send through there. Out of those things, I, I'll quit playing with you here because there's a number of things there, but it hit me that the birth control pill was probably one of the most important things that loosened up everything for it to move forward the way that they desire and what you're talking about is that contributed i would think very greatly to wasn't it california that was the first state to pass the no fault divorce laws that's what i remember uh-huh. okay so here's your birth control pill here's all the promiscuity and here's the real first state to come in with just this no fault divorce i just want to divorce see you later oh and by the way i get half everything mm-hmm. and the governments among men are, will be as unstable as the relationships between uh, married men. Boy, and that's an interesting that, corollary. That that is axiomatic. All I just say that I guess the way to say it is uh, I've got good authority on that too. But that's a studied opinion. I don't think it's arguable. If uh, there is no stability, <coughs> I'd started talking about, but in the relationship between men and women. There will be no stable governments among men in that country, and that's where we are. Of course, again, it comes down to the Bible (laughs) explains all of this, describes all of the M.O., and most explicitly in Romans chapter 1 lays it out in, in the inevitable steps, one from the other, how all of this descent into the pit of human existence happens. And we have watched it here. When you go through Romans 1, which, by the way, is against the law to publish or to speak publicly, to read publicly in Canada. The the evil empire knows that that explains their M.O. And so it's a crime. You get thrown in jail and prosecuted for doing that. Plenty of people have. Here in America, that's why on Saturdays, on Sundays, uh, Sundays, no, I may say, how are we doing this? Uh, I forget, but on Saturday or Sunday on Patriot Soapbox, Roger, (laughs) we we started uh, going through uh, Romans, and we're starting in Chapter 1. I'm going to lay that, the M.O. of the 
useful idiots of the evil empire out entirely right there and we can apply it and see yes that is exactly not just in general but step by bloody step precisely what is happening as we watch america saturday okay somebody said no no you're doing romans on saturday well that's the plan anyway we did the lord's supper last last sunday Sunday. correct went into great detail but coming back roger uh, you do a good job of kind of, I don't know what, how you do it, Roger, but you spark an organization in my head somehow. And what I want to talk about, I realize now, is fundamentalism in America. What is fundamentalism in America? Where did it come from? How is it developed? And how did we get where we are with it? Uh, fundamentalism in America began as a matter of, of uh, high visibility in the year 1910. In the year 1910, a wealthy oil tycoon, who was the first man, him and his brother, to drill an oil well in uh, Southern California. They were from nearabouts, Titus, Pennsylvania, the famous uh-huh. famous place where the industri- oil industry in America started. Right. Back during, or even before, the war between the northern and the southern tiers of the states. Well, they joined up. They got involved in it then. But then when the war started, him and his brother, his name was Lyman Stewart, they joined the cow, the the horse unit. I get, I don't want people to get confused between the place where Jesus Christ was executed and a horse <laughs> unit. So they sound alike. So I'll just say the horse unit. He joined one there in Pennsylvania. He went through the war. And then he got the bright idea. He had a, He didn't know anything about geology. And by the way, the people that find oil seldom do. Uh, we say at home that, uh, oh, so-and-so's got a nose for oil. He knows. He just knows. Well, that's the way Stuart was. Also, the richest man in the world, Hunt, was from my neck of the woods here. And he went down into East Texas, and he had a third-grade education. He didn't know anything about geology, but he had a nose for oil, too. And every time he poked a hole in the ground, it came a gusher. And he became the wealthiest man in the world. His name was Hunt. But out there in California, that's where Lyman Stewart went, and he went on a place called Signal Hill. Now, I know where Signal Hill is. It's right in in the middle of what is now Long Beach. And when I was out there 40, almost 50 years ago, good gravy, it's hard to imagine. Uh, I used to drive up there, and there was nothing up there but a couple of old, well, there were the old oil wells still pumping and a whole lot of two-inch pipe laying around. And I remember I, you could go up there and just sit and look. At the down to the ocean across the lights of the city of Long Beach. It was just a hill, but once you get up pretty high, and that's what right on top of that hill is where he drilled that. It's all got apartment buildings on it now, but right on top of that hill, I tore my muffler off, is what I was going to say up there one time. <laughs> on top of that hill is where he poked his first hole and he hit a gusher. And he just kept poking holes like Hunt, and it wasn't long till he was producing 15% of all the oil taken out of California. and him and his brother named their company Union Oil Company because they were both in the Union Army. So they said, we're for the Union of States. We're not uh, breaking up the Union, which isn't such a bad idea on his face. I don't want people to get the idea I'm again that. Um, the right of um, getting out of the Union, that's a different matter. But if we can hold it together, I'm with Sam, Sam Houston and uh, Thomas Hart Benton and uh, Andy Jackson. They wanted to hold the union together. There's nothing wrong with that. And don't and be careful, I say to you, you, uh, you neo-Confederates out there, be careful. You don't push it too far. You're going against Andy Jackson here. And uh, Sam Houston and Thomas Hart Benton, all three Southerners, 
All three from, well, two from Tennessee, one from Missouri, all three lost their political careers entirely. Houston did and Benton because he advised, they advised their states against leaving the union and it, it didn't help them. They were in the long run, they knew what would happen. There's nothing wrong with talking that way. And we need to understand that even though the South is right about a lot of things, they were impetuous about others, but let's get back to the subject. So I was up there, Lyman Stewart and his brother founded this oil company and they were a couple of hardcore Bible thumping Presbyterians. Lyman and his brother. Well, now they had millions and millions and millions of dollars. And so they got to looking around and they noticed that the Presbyterian church had been infected by German scholarship. Well, scholasticism is what I should say. You know, the Germans, all these dead Germans still control the world. People like Nietzsche and Marx, who was a Jewish German. Hegel. Hegel. These men from the grave control the world. Still, they were Babylonish. They rejected the, the God that made their country as prosperous as it was. And, and um, Adolf Hitler doesn't get a pass here. He promoted those guys. He promoted those guys. If he didn't do it in name, uh, he did it in theory. And, of course, he was for national communism. That's what the Nazi party was. Uh, Germany first. Well, that was a good idea. I'm not quarreling about what they did. What their country did internally, from my perspective, it should have been their business. And we should have stayed out of it until they attacked us. But of course, they were stupid enough, stupid, I mean really stupid, to declare war on the United States. That was the dumbest thing any German the Germans ever did. And of course, it was Hitler that really did it. The German people couldn't believe what was going on. They said, we can't do this. They knew it from the start. Well, all that scholarship from the late 1800s, of course, started to infect America and it infected the Presbyterian Church, which was still the bulwark, the, the last surviving Ivy League school that upheld the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. And the seminary at Princeton, it's a Presbyterian school, upheld it. Harvard had capitulated to the Unitarians in the year 1811. Yale followed in the 1870s. Princeton did not capitulate. And the, the professors at Princeton Seminary, of course, all three of those were started as uh, Bible colleges to produce preachers. And all uh, three of them, two of them capitulated. Princeton didn't. But then Lyman Stewart saw the problem. So he commissioned with his money, him and his brother, commissioned two things. Number one, they launched a Bible school in, uh, in downtown Los Angeles called Biblical Institute of Los Angeles, B-I-O-L-A. Today it's called Biola University. But back then it was a, a biblical institute fashioned after the Moody Bible Institute of Chicago, which is now a college, uh, very well known. Mm -hmm. Well, they, they did that out there, and they asked the former president of Moody to come out and set up the curriculum. And he'd had a falling out with Moody, and so he said... Well, he said, uh, if you build me a building where I can preach to 6,000 people on a Sunday morning and they can all hear me and put a Bible Institute on top of that auditorium so we can have a laboratory situation for the students to be involved there in this, this church that we're going to have, he said, I'll do it. Well, the Stewart brothers said, okay, we'll do that. And they launched, uh, they built the Church of the Open Door, which was a famous landmark. By the way, some of you may remember it. 
that building was tore down, I believe, in 87 or 88 of uh, 1987. And the fellow that tried to save it from being tore down was none other than none other than Gene Scott. Gene Scott of uh, television fame, uh, quite a character. But he didn't get the job done. He raised a lot of money because the building is amazing. It was designed that 6,000 people could hear Tory uh, twice a week as he taught the Bible from that that uh, podium there. Well, uh, they did that, and they did it, of course, uh, with their own money from the Union Oil Company. And then also he hired a group of scholars to write 90 essays to pay them for their time. And they wrote 90 essays from the year 1910. Biola was founded in 1909. 1910, these 90 men uh, wrote 90, or 90 men, these men wrote 90 essays in an attempt to establish five things, but that he saw the Presbyterian church was losing. Number one, the virgin birth. These are biblical doctrines, of course. They're facts of the record. The virgin birth and the deity of the man, Jesus Christ. Next, the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Next, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And from the dead, and finally, the uh, the, uh, the recognition of the veracity of the record of the miracles of Jesus Christ. And they wrote 90 essays, and it, it was quite an effort, uh, and it became a famous set of 90 essays from the year 1910 to the year um, 1915. And... Uh, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, professor of New Testament language and literature at Princeton, was one of the writers. And G. Campbell Morgan, who was a Brit, but he had taught at Biola for years. Those were the, the most well-known men that wrote those essays. And the German, uh, the German scholars, scholastics, said that, and they still say, that B.B. Um, Warfield was the only... True, true student that they respected in America. But those men, B.B. Warfield and Robert Dick Wilson of Princeton and Gershon Machen, uh, professor of New Testament language and literature of Princeton, and Robert Dick Wilson, professor of New Testament language and literature, and a few others that are lesser known, Morgan, just as important. They are the men that stemmed the fate of Germany coming to America. It came largely to England, but it was stemmed a little. But it was stemmed even more from getting to America. It got here. Uh, but when I, when I was growing up, I had never heard a sermon or a preacher at a revival meeting or as a boy in church of anybody, and I didn't know anybody who would have doubted the authority and the inerrancy of the Bible. Roger, were you going to say something? No, sir. Okay. I'm, I'm intently listening like everybody else. Okay, so that's, that, um, that was the state of America, and the German, the infection of, of Nietzsche, uh, God is Dead movement, Karl Marx, another a German Jew, a, a Jew living in Germany, and um, a Hegel, which you had mentioned, and him and Marx were pretty tight. Uh, all of that was coming to America. It becomes fashionable for people to say, I'm smart. I know how to use logic. I am a critical thinker, and all of this German scholarship appeals 
to the university setting. And the people that go there, they want to be thought of as smart, and that's why they're in school, and that's how it infects the the, the educational institutions, this foolishness called um, the primacy of logic, which is scholasticism, the official doctrine, of course, of Rome and of Jude Babylonian Judaism and of, of uh, Islam, all three. Uh, I have a whole section in the book. Uh, you can go get the book, uh, Excellence of the Common Law, the Comparative Law Text. I have a section in the book about those three men and how they all fit together uh, after the papal revolution of the 11th century to uh, foster all of these revolutions that have occurred, the communist revolutions, the fashioned after the papal revolution of the 11th century, the French revolution, etc., not the American revolution for reasons we've cited before on this show. But that's fundamentalism. And what they said when they wrote those essays was that we want to establish uh, and this was what Lyman Stewart and his brother that founded Union Oil Company. We want to reestablish what Puritan America has lost, what Presbyterian America has lost, what the German and Dutch Reformed groups in America are losing. The fundamental, the fundamentals, the fundus, as the it's a Latin-based word, which means foundation, the foundation footer of all truth, and we are demeaning that we're slighting it and that won't be allowed now some of you that listen on uh, fridays uh, you've probably noticed that that's something i'm real sensitive about allowing people to attack the funduses the fundamentals of the of the christian record because they're so overwhelmingly true and if you're one of those people that is willing to ignore that or slight it or put it aside you my friend are the problem in america you are the reason, part of the reason, of course, with the critical mass of others, of why Obama is in the White House, Biden is in the White House, uh, children in America are, are betting each other like rabbits. The family is no more. Um, we face death, a culture of death as we speak. Why? Because the thing that had been established in the north of Europe during the Reformation, throwing out the, the Babylonish cultures of death, fighting for their lives all over Europe and then eventually in Britain, bringing those ideas to America where people, others could come and enjoy freedom from the bondage of modern Babylonianism, Rome, Judaism, Islam. Come here and do that. You know, I was just thinking this morning, Roger, our national motto by act of Congress is in God we trust. That would preclude, of course, trusting in the Virgin Mary. <laughs> These are no small matters. Let's be careful about our words. In God we trust is good. We don't trust ourselves. We don't trust other men. We don't trust other countries. We don't trust our military might. We don't trust our industrial might. We don't trust the scholarships. We don't trust the universities. We don't trust the saints. We don't trust Mary. Who do we trust? In God we trust. And that is the foundation of what Americanism means. And if there's anything else you're paying veneration to, you're worshiping, you're, you're deeming worthy of your, of your worthy worshipship of your time and your money, well, you're part of the problem. Did you get, just get knocked off there, Brent? I heard a click. Sounds like Brent got knocked off. Does, did y'all see him on the board there? Did he get top knocked no, off? Oh, there you go. Okay, there you're back. Okay. You know what happens, Roger. When I talk, I have Italian friends, and I'm starting to act like them. And when I talk, my hands move around. <laughs> and, uh, 
<laughs> this is how this is how how in, how influenced we can be. And anyway, I don't mind moving my hands around, but I bumped that thing and you, shut you, it off. You, you, told me you probably knocked a pulled a, a, a mini plug out or something. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, one of my Italian friends just messaged me and said, "Very funny." Well, <laughs> <laughs> that means it's not funny to them at all. Well, uh, I'm not again t- using your hands when you talk. Matter of fact, that helps a little bit uh, in the communication process. Yes, as, it as does. Talks, as does the expressions of the face, and and uh, I think that uh, that's one of the things they, as many other people have offered to our our country, uh, just a whole lot of things in America that are good. Let's don't lose it. And the way to not lose it is to come back to the fundus. Well, what happened after that? Well, after the night, after World War I, there set in, of course, a, a terrible despair. And with that terrible despair, it was all orchestrated, of course, by the evil one himself. We had no business in World War I. It was a culture, more again, of more death, um, murdering, murdering people while they murdered us for no reason, no apparent reason. And there was a despair that came, and the war to end all wars didn't didn't happen. Everybody knew that um, the lull between World War One, World War Two, and we even know it better now, was nothing but a lull in the battle, and we were reloading our weapons. All yep. of us. Well, America wasn't; they weren't, but the rest of the world were. But we, uh, Roosevelt, had lulled us into thinking the rest of the world were nice people. He was a an incurable an incurable, effeminate in that way. His wife was a homosexual. Uh, this is what has happened to America. And it came because, again, the the, funda- the fundus movement was a respectable movement back then, and it stemmed the tide of the Babylonish evil empire again. And Princeton and the men there were instrumental, but Princeton then, by 1930, 1930, even a little before, had defrocked these Four men I had mentioned, Warfield, Wilson, and uh, Machen, and uh, uh, was there another one? I thought I mentioned four, but, well, G. Campbell Morgan. But had defrocked those three and others because they wouldn't go along with what was coming. And the devil, again, is very clever. And his useful idiots and Pearl Buck. Pearl Buck was a Presbyterian. She was a missionary in China, and she wrote a book called the, I believe it's called The Green Earth. I read it once. It's a terribly depressing book. Launched her into international fame. Mm-hmm. The Good Earth. The Good Earth. Yeah, The Good Earth. About a, a um, well, it was about a, a marriage that was broken up and people that were less than handsome and less than beautiful and just ugly. And uh, now, was that she, a, did that center on the Chinese culture or was that our culture? Yeah, oh, yeah, right. yeah. It was Chinese. Yeah, she was writing about. And the Presbyterian Church in America supported her. But when she denied the, the fundus, uh, the deity of Jesus Christ and the virgin birth, uh, she was so famous that the missionary board of the Presbyterian Church was afraid to say anything about it. Mm-hmm. Well, these men from Princeton, Machen especially, went to the board and said, what are we going to do about Mrs. Buck? We've got to do something. We can't rightfully continue to support her when she's denied the fundamentals the fundus of our faith. Well, they were afraid because of her fame, and they didn't want to be. They didn't want to appear to be uh, brainless people who weren't going along with the in crowd. And so, instead of defrocking her and cutting off her support, they defrocked the men at Princeton and threw mm. them out on the on their cans. Mm. Now, these 
yeah, that's what happened. And um, so they went off and formed their own groups, and the Presbyterian Church has been split in and resplit in and split in and resplit in ever since to try to maintain biblical in, uh, integrity. Well, after that, then the fundamentalist movement, uh, something occurred in 1925 that was exceedingly important to the fundamentalist movement and, and morphed it into something else other than how it started. And that was the monkey trial of 1925. Oh, the Scopes trial. In Dayton, yeah, Dayton, Tennessee. And that trial, of course, the most famous trial lawyer in America, defended the teacher who went against uh, the legislated law and taught ed- evolution in, in uh, the high school there in Dayton, Tennessee. And he was prosecuted, and then he had a criminal trial. So... It was uh, it was Clarence Darrow and versus who? Who was the other attorney? William Jennings Bryan. Right, right. Crucify us, crucify us on this cross of gold. Cross of gold. But he was also Secretary of State under under uh, Tab. After, Wilson, but he, uh, was it Wilson or was it uh, was it uh, uh, Teddy? I believe it was Wilson because he was Democrat. See, and then but he bailed out with Wilson because he didn't agree with Wilson's policies, and so he quit. But he was—he ran for president three times, right? And was re- rejected. But the Democratic Party put him up for president three times. That was the—he uh, was very much a biblicist, and that—that that was the Democratic Party's convulsions, trying to show themselves to be Christian folk. Of course, Bryant was a showman, and he was—he uh, was a man that ate so much he finally killed himself. Is what happened, as Clarence Darrow said. He didn't die of a broken heart like he said he died of a busted gut and um, during that trial he was like that well, it was a hot sweltering time mm-hmm. in tennessee and it was one of those few times mm-hmm. the court allowed the lawyers in the case to take off their coats and their ties that you remember the name of that movie yeah uh, oh um inherit the wind inherit the wind yeah now that movie it's important to mention i'm glad you brought that up roger if you were you going to say something about no that? no i'm just flashing on the well, watching movie, the movie as you're talking i can see the you know scenes of that in my mind yeah. 1973 and that movie was designed to show christian people were buffoons that was what that movie was about out of hollywood of course mm-hmm. and they wanted and they did they portrayed william jennings bryan and christian men as buffoons mm-hmm. Um, and the people of the world have always done that, and they always will do it. They hate Jesus Christ, and because they hate him, said Jesus Christ, they will hate you. They hate me, therefore they will hate you. Why do they hate you? Because I chose you. I picked you out from among them and set you on high. That's why. You know, to drop a footnote here, there was another fellow about that time, 1925. His name, he was a, a Welshman, and his name was... Martin Lloyd, Martin Lloyd Jones. His last name was Lloyd Dash Jones. That's a Welsh name, Lloyd Jones. First name was Martin, and he was from a poor coal mining town in in uh, in uh, Western Wales. He wanted to, his father was wasn't anybody important. Nobody in that town was important. He wanted to to go to medical school. He got it in his head. He was able to go. He got a scholarship because he was so sharp. He was a, like a lot of Welshmen. He wasn't a big man. 
And he went to medical school, and he worked at the greatest research hospital in the world at that time, St. Bartholomew's, affectionately called still St. Bart's, St. Bart's Hospital in in London. And uh, he worked there, and he got to know, uh, as as he got his his, uh, law school, or his law school, his medical school education out of the way, he got to know the family physician to the royal family, who was at St. Bart's. And the family physician to the royal family then took him on as his chief assistant. And he then became, of course, a doctor, along with his boss, the more senior man, physicians to the royal family. Well, he was hobnobbing with all the big dogs at that point. He wasn't just living under the porch with the hound dogs. He was up on the top of the porch with the big dogs, and and he was going to all the fancy events, and, of course, uh, acted learning how to be uh, brush elbows with royalty. And he, one night he said he went to a, an opera. You know, us, in, us here in America don't know much about operas except the grand old Opry. <laughs> not hardly the same. That's no, not hardly the same, but that's our opera. And, uh, but they had the fancy operas over on the other side of the pond and he'd go to them with all the big shots that tuxedos and ties and the women with the big hats back in the 1920s and hat pins and all that highfalutin stuff and where the elite meat to eat pig's feet. And he was in that world and he went to an opera, had his wife with him, his little wife, and they came out in their fancy clothes, which were really foreign to him coming from that poor coal mining town in Wales. It was on the verge of revolution when he was growing up. If it hadn't been for the Welsh revival of 1905, There'd have been bloodshed there. Well, he came out of that Opry, and he said he looked down the street, and there was a Salvation Army band, uh, a bunch of, you've been seen a Salvation Army people. They're pretty much rejects uh, by the world standards. The people that stand out in front of Walmart and ring the bell to get you to donate at Christmas time, those aren't people that are at the top of the food chain. But he looked down a band, Salvation Army band down there, and they weren't people at the top of the, economic food chain either and they were playing instruments playing some gospel song they had some preacher out there with talking to his the cubic foot of air in front of his face which is what street preachers often have to do and he said all of a sudden it struck him as he looked at that salvation army band he said those are my people a lot of people from wales were in the salvation army and a lot of poor people from london are part of the salvation army and he said these people here aren't my people I've never been comfortable with these people going these operas and hobnobbing with royalty. And all of a sudden it threw him into a, this is in 19, about 1925 threw him into a quandary of a struggle that he almost didn't live through. He got so skinny. He couldn't eat. He couldn't sleep. He got so emaciated. And he, as a doctor, he knew that that was a dangerous way to be. And he also discovered, and he always said this, that he discovered working at that research hospital that as much as anything else, if not more, of people's physical problems are emotional problems which result from a spiritual detachment. Mm -hmm. That was his conclusion as a medical doctor. But he said he saw himself going through that. His health started going downhill. His friends began to worry about him. The doctor he worked for worried about him. He said he had to do something, and what he was struggling with was his own slighting of Jesus Christ, (laughs) S-L-I-G-H-I-N-T, slighting, I-N-G, just his ignoring of him, not giving him chief attention and obedience to the law of God in his life. He was 
spurning, as the old song says, the law of God, the law I spurned. Wasn't that he was against God. He just wasn't paying any attention, which is called disrespect, like you'd, that'd be of your parents living in the home with them. Well, finally, he had to make a decision. Either I'm going to die and stay away from my own kind of people, or I'm going to go tell them the truth. That tough decision, and when he made it, he, he quit the medical profession and his position as assistant to the Queen's physician, and he went back to Wales in uh, a coal mining town there, and he became the preacher in this little tiny church there. Wow. And he, spent, and he eventually, eventually, of course, he was invited to the London Tabernacle, and he preached there to crowds of thousands later on in his life until he retired. He passed away in 1981. Really? That's Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he became, of course, uh, able to speak and did speak to the royalty of London as well as the, the Salvation Army crowd. And he had great respect. And it was men like him that stemmed the tide of German scholasticism that was infecting his own country. And they did stem the tide. I'm saying England suffered worse than us, but not as we didn't suffer as much because of our because of our beginnings. And the most important part of anything or any person or any country or any institution, says our common law, is its beginning. And our beginnings are different than any other country on the faces of the of the green earth as Pearl Buck said, of the earth. And that is, our beginnings are puritanical. And uh, because the evil empire hates God, they have given bad press to the Puritans for uh, several hundred years now. The Puritans are not what they have said in the history books that are taught to school children, not what they were. They didn't wear black and white clothing like Amishmen. They wore colorful clothing. They didn't didn't have any inhibitions about sex. They wrote extensively about what sex should be and how a man should go about dealing with his wife and sex and how the bed, as the Bible says in marriage, is undefiled. Anything goes within God's uh, within the scope of God's boundaries. Uh, the Puritan people were prolific. They loved children. They had lots of them. They were productive. They were the upper middle class of England when they came here. They intended to rule the country of England from New England. They didn't just want to start a new country. They wanted to rule their country. And amazingly, what they started out to do, they said, we want to be the city on the hill, not London. Uh, what they started out to do happened. We became the leader of England as an English-speaking people. Uh, not, not to be against them, but to be for them. New England set out not to be against England, but to be for their own brothers of consanguinity that's how they started out well that was 1925 after that after the scopes trial and the scopes trial and of course clarence darrow was a bohemian in this sense he he wasn't bohemian by blood but he took up what we have called ever since the bohemian culture he was from southern ohio central southern ohio he moved to chicago illinois which was where things were happening back then mm -hmm. in the late 1800s and he became one of these fellows that would sit around on, on Persian carpets with his, his Bohemian friends, cross-legged, by the way. Mm -hmm. Nothing new, cross-legged on the floor, 
smoking opium, drinking coffee, and talking about political theory. The intellectual crowd, the bohemian crowd, we called them later the beatnik crowd, we called them later the hippie crowd. It's all the same filthy, rotten, smelly, dirty, non-productive trash. Babylonianism, scholasticism. Sit around and try to look scholastic to your friends. Then think that you're sensitive and you are logical. You are a critical thinker. That was Clarence Darrow. He was a great trial lawyer, but he was a buffoon in the sense that he wanted to destroy Christianity. He hated Christianity. Really? He hated Jesus Christ, and he hated God, and he hated the Bible, just like his father before him. And so the Scopes trial was all about grandstanding. It was a travesty, and that trial changed the attitude of America toward the Bible in a great way. It was another grand step in the wrong direction because it was so well, so well politicized, and that movie is an attempt to reenact the politicization politicization of that trial. And they did a good job. Of course, it was promoted by people who followed Babylonian Judaism because that's what they wanted to do, was destroy the Bible's view of, of, of the true God. Well, they had just at that point taken control of the newspapers through the critical distribution key newspapers that distribute stories down to smaller ones. And this is the very early days of radio. So that was the only other mass communication. And you had a lot of confusion in the radio industry at that point because there was no regulatory scheme. Okay. That's right. And 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 the, anybody could stick up a tower at any strength of the transmitter they could afford to buy. And there was no directional limitations, there was no signal strength limitations. And so what was happening was this industry with so much incredible potential was literally strangling itself because there'd be two or three people on the same frequency and you couldn't differentiate the signal. Well, here's another thing, Roger. I know what you're saying is true. Here's another thing that happened in 1925. Kind of fits in, I suppose. That was the year that Uncle Dave Macon took his banjo, and he was the first performer Uh-oh. on the radio broadcast of, at WSM, uh-huh. the Grand Ole Opry. Right. <laughs> but uh, just a side note. But fundamentalism then was labeled and promoted, and has been promoted ever since. They had to... De- they had to diminish respect for what was the movement that came out of Princeton to establish and maintain the inerrancy of the funduses and the re- reliability okay. of back, the evidentiary reliability of the record. Back to the mind. pearl. Back to the pearl buck situation. Yeah, uh-huh. and so they did it, and it got started there in a big way. They didn't do it entirely, but it got started big. And then after that, and then after that, the push was on by people who hated hated God's evidentiary record called the Bible. And so through the 1930s and the 1940s, by the time we get to 1940, uh, fundamentalism had been demeaned to the point that the only fundamentalist that people knew about were what they call the boneheaded Baptist. And fundamentalism has been attached to the Baptist denomination in that way ever since. Now, I hasten to add I'm not a Baptist for very important reasons of the Bible. And one of the reasons why, and I've never been a Baptist, and I don't want to be a Baptist, because it's my conviction from the Bible that among the chief 
duties of God's elect, the ones that Jesus Christ has chosen out of the world by his sovereign, his sovereignty. The chief purposes that God has for them is to show the world what the true government of God is. In other words, his kingdom, the kingdom of God, his basileia, the arrangement that he wants of jurisdictions among men, the governments of men, as we'd said before, that starts between the man and the woman. God's people, among their chief practical practical um, responsibilities, duties, is to show the government of God's people. And fundamentally, not all of them, but fundamentally, the Baptists have not done that. A Baptist culture is dictatorship, like Rome. I'm not saying they don't have the gospel. I'm not saying they don't believe the Bible, but they certainly don't believe the Bible when it comes to what kind of government God demands of his people. Um, the Baptist preacher, just like the charismatic preacher, Assemblies of God, Pentecostals, the TV preachers, the, that whole crowd is all dictatorship. They, they rail on Rome or against Rome, but they have the same kind of government. It's just confined to a smaller area, and they claim it just – that's what, the, by the way, the definition of Antichrist is, anti Christ. So they had not infiltrated the Dallas Seminary, which is the head seminary for the Baptist religion, the way I understand it. They had not infiltrated that with the Schofield Bible teachings yet at this well, point? Or was the, the, it in process? Yeah, as a, as a, as a matter of, uh, some people say a technical matter, Dallas has never been a Baptist school. But it is true that it's... It's always been a chief seminary for Baptists, but they've never affiliated themselves with any outside denomination. But it is true, as you said. And it is true that Dallas Seminary has promoted, while teaching the Hebrew tongue and the Aramaic tongue of the Older Testament, they promoted the idea that it doesn't matter. The Older Testament doesn't matter. We don't even need it. We don't need to look at the law of God. 70% of the Bibles in the Old Testament. This is the cleverness of the devil himself, mm -hmm. that he would promote the teaching of the tongues of the Old Testament, the original tongues, and very much teach it there, but then deny it as a practical matter. Oh, it's a lot of truth, see, can come out of that. And, but that's right, Roger. The, the, the Baptists have depended on Bob Jones University, Dallas Seminary, of course, and other uh, Baptist fundamentalist Baptist seminaries. See, when I say the fun fundamentalist Baptist, when people have a picture in their head what that is, that's called boneheadedness. That's what they think. Well, uh, again, I don't want to promote the Baptist. I believe that they're teaching the wrong kind of government. And uh, God says that that kind of government, well, you, where you have a man who says, I have, Jesus Christ has given me all jurisdiction in myself, in this particular bailiwick, whether it be my church, my denomination, or, or uh, as the Pope of Rome does, the whole world and all men that live in it, down here on land. Uh, Jesus Christ has delegated to me all authority. That's called antichrist. That's the, what the Greek preposition in the New Testament means. It means instead of, in place of, as a substitute for, a vice in the, in the, in the uh, French tongue, a vice roi, vice uh, French, uh, in place of Roy, king, in place of the king. The viceroy of India had all the power of the crown mm -hmm. of England mm -hmm. in India. That's called a viceroy. Um, we had those kind of governors in America before we broke with Britain. The governors in America were 
as a uh, as a legal matter viceroys they had all power and they were getting more all the time they were well they didn't when they got here but they were working toward that because we were part they said we were part of the empire we weren't part of the kingdom of england well that's why we went to war but getting back to the government of god the baptists have been associated with fundamentalism fundamentalism i had a baptist friend there there in Terre Haute. i used to be on the radio with him my peach of a guy uh very much of a humbled man he they sent him to prison federal prison for five years and his wife went for a number of years with him uh, because another baptist didn't like got envious of him which is another part what, of, what charges let me interrupt what they send him up on uh securities violation of securities mm, laws mm, mm. but it wasn't uh, it was a, a jealous fellow who was in the state legislature who got the feds after him because he was complaining because he bought a piece of property there south of indianapolis and they were going to build a church house on it and uh there was a large industry there dumping sewage onto their property and they tried to stop it and this fellow was chief shareholder and that's that's the way the real world works yes well, at any rate he used to say to me he said this on laughingly he'd been a baptist all his life said brent do you know what the difference between a baptist and a presbyterian is i said what now, there's some truth in this. That's why it's kind of funny. He said, well, there's no difference doctrinally, except the real difference is um, a Baptist is a Presbyterian, and a Presbyterian is a Baptist. The only difference is a Presbyterian knows how to read. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, by the way, I'm not a Presbyterian either. I make that clear. I never have been officially, but I do see that the Presbyterians and the Westminster Confession have been valuable to the founding and the ordering of our government in america the bible the westminster confession is a summation of bible doctrine but fundamentalism then morphed into that it morphed into the prohibition movement after 1925 which was uh, unbiblical and madness it morphed into the whole idea uh, of politi- the politicization and, the, and the, the moral majority of Jerry Falwell, of course, who was a Baptist, a fundamentalist Baptist. Fundamentalism, as the world came to understand it after the Scopes trial in the 1973 movie, uh, Inherit the Wind, um, that's the, the moral majority and the idea that God wants to rule the world through a majority. A majority has something to do with God's government. It doesn't. never has. Majority is not the fundamental of our common law tradition. What's the, that's a, a consonant with the Bible. What's the fundamental of our common law tradition? The fundamental of our common law tradition is the, the jury. We're teaching a class right. in the grand jury and the jury. Right. That's the fundamental. And that's not, those aren't majority institutions. Neither the trial jury nor the grand jury are majority institutions. Both of them take 12, 12 to indict and 12 to convict. The grand jury can have 15 people, 23 people, or however many it has. 12 people, it always takes 12 to indict. It's not a matter of majority. There's a different principle in God's government. Go ahead. I think I told you and mentioned to you that John Benson, my teacher, thought that the jury was the base plank of the Republican form of government. He was real strong on that. Well, I... It's the base plank of common law government, but I disagree with him. It's not the base plank of republicanism or republican government because republican government is the same thing as democratic government. It has been since the inception of the people that made the ideas famous, the Greeks. The Greeks made no distinction between republic and democracy. 
those were synonyms that they used to stress different different things about the same thing. And the Republicans of the Republican governments of the world ever since then, the infusion of the the Greek scholastics, Aristotle, that came through uh, the Islamic sage Averroes into Europe and to St. Thomas Aquinas and the Jewish rabbi Mohammedes in the Middle Ages, they were all contemporaries, that republicanism idea crept into our common law tradition and was part of the, the civil war in England, but that was democracy. And that's why the tyrannies of the world, the Republic of France, the Republic, the Soviet Socialist Republic, the uh, Republic of China, and a lot of other lesser-known republics of the world have been tyrannies. Mm -hmm. Now, we have in our Constitution what's called a republican form of government. And what does that mean? Well, that means that you have a, a common law government with a legislative branch. Common law government has three co-equal, separate, and co-equal independent branches. Neither one of them trumps the other. But in order, it came to be called, during the, the uh, English re, uh, Civil War, uh, republicanism. That, what does that mean? That means we put a lot of power in the legislature. And they made, in the Parliament of England yet today, they started out as a common law country, but now uh, the Parliament, theoretically, is sovereign. But they've split it up a little bit. The, the queen, when parliament starts its session, comes into parliament. She's the keeper of the sovereignty of the country. She comes in and loans it to parliament. She's the one that opens parliament and leaves the badges of her sovereignty there with them while they do their business. Well, that's getting closer to common law government, which they had had under the Anglo-Saxon and Anglo-Dane governments before the Norman invasion. But America said no. Uh, we're separating ourselves from that. You fellows have had trouble. We're starting uh, fresh. We're having a common law government of three separate branches. There's a Republican element to it, a majority principle to it, but that majority principle doesn't rule. That's why we have uh, electoral college mm -hmm. that elects the president. Right. That's why we had in our Constitution the state legislators electing the senators. And all of those things are slowly, they're trying to get rid of oh, them. I was going to say, they're desperately trying to get rid of the Electoral yeah. College. Yes. And we already got rid of the senators being elected by the state legislators. Right, right. But what we're having now, of course, is uh, Republicanism. Isn't it something that we, Republican, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are named by the two names that are utter synonyms in the history of uh, scholasticism. And, uh, they're just uh, two legs of the same thing, and we're that's proving out more and more as time goes on. That's always been true. That's why I like to say, let's don't talk about a Republican form of government. That's patriot mythology. Let's say common law government. That's better. That's what it is. But back to the jury. The jury is the final decider of right and wrong in individual instances from whose decision there is no appeal uh, unless due process wasn't followed. Well, what do we call uh, something that does that, a thing like that? We call that a, a, a lawgiver, a God. And that's the God of our common law tradition. God is delegated to men, not one man, not a government of men, but a jury to make the final decision in individual, individual instances. We call that justice. There is no justice except in individual instances. There is no such thing as group justice. It has never existed. It never will exist. And only common law government, the law of the land government, recognizes that. The law of the city government that governs every other country mm -hmm. in the world except the 
small handful of common law countries uh, believe that that's possible. It's not possible. Mm-hmm. Our common law government is con- consonant with the Bible, not because it's taken from the Bible, but because it's from the same source as the Bible, which is God himself. And our common law government is the nexus that allows, the nexus, the conduit, that allows the, the, uh, the principles of the Bible, of law and government, to have legs and to stand up, be alive, and walk. For example, the, Declar- the, the Constitution of the United States is a boring document. How do I know? Well, nobody knows what's in it much. Even the people that found it and say they believe it, they don't know what's in it. Why? Because it's hard to read. It's so boring. It's a dry and dispirited skeleton of words, unless something breathes life into it. Well, what breathes life into it? Our common law. So we take, and they're always published together, we take the Declaration of 76, which is a real case in controversy, a complaint at common law, and we put that with the Declaration of 76, and then it has life and becomes applicable because our common law is not known except in a real case in controversy. It is not a hypothetical. It is not something we get out of the dusty, smelly libraries where monkish people live in cloisters. The Romanism, the Babylonishness of scholasticism, that's not our common law. If we're not having a real fight, we never do find the truth. The truth is not found with the scholastics of the Middle Ages. The Thomism, the the the, the, the St. Thomas Aquinas writings and all of these monkish people that do all this thinking, that's not how God says truth is discovered. Truth is discovered through a fight. Mm-hmm. That's what God says. Mm-hmm. There has to be a real case in controversy. Not too many, well, a couple of years ago, I went through the Old Testament in the winterized version of the Bible, and there's a Hebrew word that means real case in controversy. It comes up dozens of times in the Old Testament, and I just, I, I didn't, know how to translate it and get the real idea of the world and find word. And finally I said, I'm just going to take that common law phrase out of our constitution and put it right in there, real case and controversy. And I hyphenated it. And every time that word comes up in the Hebrew older Testament, that's the way it's translated because that's what God approves of. There has to be a bloody plaintiff, a real fight and our common law fundamentally is a private law between private citizens. There has to be a real complaint. There has to be a real complaint alleging damage, loss of life, liberty, property, or a combination thereof. And if you don't allege that, the courts will say, I have no jurisdiction over this. You're not alleging loss of life, liberty, property, or a combination thereof. I'm throwing the case out. It's not a real case in controversy. Our common law courts have no jurisdiction over anything. No hypothetical questions, Judge. I want to file a case because I, I want to know what the answer to this question is. I'm not fighting with any about it, anybody about it. I haven't lost any uh, life, liberty, or property over this or my reputation or any of that. I just want you to tell me what you think the answer would be and what you would do if a case like that came up. Well, he'll throw it out because in our common it's law It's totally hypothetical. The world, we don't care. Go ahead. It's a totally hypothetical situation that hypothetical, you just... Back to you, Roger. Well, uh, it's very interesting that you say that. I keep flashing in my mind what my deceased dear friend Ron Brown used to say. There's only two types of crimes, mala prohibita and mala inse. Mala prohibit or man-made crimes. You can't spit on the sidewalk. Mala in say is exactly what you're talking about here. Crimes within themselves where there's an injured party. Yes. Well, uh, an alleged injured party, okay. as you said, well, Right. You got to get it in the complaint. You have to plead it properly, and then it may be able to get in. But our courts, our courts of 
limited jurisdiction, you see. Um, they just can't rule on anything they want to. And that, again, that's our common law tradition, three branches of government. No one branch has ultimate authority over the other one. Andy Jack, Andy Jackson said, well, I've made my decision. He said this twice that I know of. I made my decision. Let's see if the Supreme Court of the United States, if they disagree with me. Yeah, with, the audience may not know what you're talking about. What he's talking about is when Andrew Jackson wouldn't sign the charter on the Second Bank of the United States. The bankers, as they're prone to do, went and corrupted and took it to court in front of some corrupted judges, and they came up with an opposite decision, and Andrew Jackson said, Brent, let him enforce it, right? Right. Let them see what they can do. Uh, he could do it. And the other time was when a bunch of silly do-gooders said that filed a case in the courts to to stop the u.s government from removing um dozens by the way not just the cherokee dozens of tribes from east of the mississippi mm -hmm. to oklahoma mm -hmm. well a lot of those tribes at least half if not more wanted to go because they could see what jackson was saying that jackson said these tribes are going to lose their culture the whites are in are flooding into these indian lands to such an extent and into those parts of the world, it's unstoppable. Nobody can do anything to stop it, and they're going to lose their culture. And so the Cherokee and the Choctaw and the Chickasha, some of the civilized tribes, by the way, the Seminoles were Cherokee that had ran away to Florida. They were oh, nothing more okay. than Cherokee. They weren't Seminole. They weren't a separate tribe. They just took a different name. Mm -hmm. But they... Uh, these were called the civilized tribes because they developed their own tongue. That, well, they had their own tongue, but they put it in writing. They developed their own governments, their own constitutions, their own uh, laws, their own uh, newspapers, and they became very powerful <clears throat> because uh, they were removed. And this whole thing about the Trail of Tears is overhyped. Yep. Uh, many of them wanted to go. That's all I'm saying. What you it, read in the it, history books are always used to promote, promote some left-wing. Go ahead. And go it's ahead. unfortunate because a lot of people don't know that history and are really down on that because of that on Andy Jackson. And he was actually had a, a very much of a compassionate. Didn't he, had, didn't he have an adopted child that was an Indian or something? He had two boys, two boys that were full-blooded red boys uh, that he adopted. <clears throat> Uh, him and his wife and others. Yeah, he, was, he wasn't He down on them. He, the, the, the red man was part of his world and always had been, uh -huh. even though he'd gone to war with them for uh, reasons that were uh, justified in many people's minds. He was very compassionate toward them. One of the boys, maybe both of them that he adopted, he got off the battlefield and took him home to his wife. And, of course, she became very attached, and they raised him up in another one. But... Um, Jackson. It doesn't sound in, like somebody is down on the Indians to me. Oh, that's the way it always is, though. Oh, the left is, they'll do anything. But Jackson uh, had a lot of those tribes behind him. The tribes that lived here where I'm from in the Wabash Valley, most notably the Kickapoo, they wanted out of here. And they left. And they left without a hitch. And they joined the, the, uh, the Trail of Tears, came through this area because because they wanted to pick up some of these other tribes that wanted to go and uh, be free of the white man. And they, they went uh, to Oklahoma. The Kickapoo wound up in northeast Kansas on a reservation, and then they moved to Oklahoma, and then they got mad at the government and, and moved south of the, uh, into Mexico. And they're still down there, by the way. Oh, okay. uh, but that, that's just one I know about. There were uh -huh. many others 
that retain their culture, and we don't want people to necessarily lose all their culture. We do want them to understand our culture of government and to accept it. And if they don't, we won't keep our freedoms. Uh, there's no question about that. They need to be acclimated to that. And that is consonant, of course, as we'd said a while ago with the Bible. But the fundamentalist movement then, moving into 1973, uh, the movie was very influential, Inherit the Wind, which was revisiting and promoting what Clarence Darrow was trying to promote, uh, the godless man that he was, the bohemian that he was, bohemian cultured man that he was back in 19 and 25. But, and then the moral majority arose, which was uh, understandably a Baptist movement by a Baptist who did not accept God's form of government. Uh, he was a, a dictator in his own church as a practical matter and as a legal matter. A lot of Baptists will say to me, well, we have deacons. Yeah, I know you do, but they don't have any authority, and they're there for window dressing to make people think that sometimes that there's, they have some say in what's going on. I remember talking to an Assembly of God preacher. Well, it came out of the Assembly of God. It was uh, the Calvary Chapel movement out of Southern California, which was uh, hippies, and uh, uh, which went awry. But, of course, being Assembly of God, they were a tyrannical group as well. And uh, he was in church. I had attended there some, teaching the Bible. They teach the Bible, but they're off because they don't attempt to show the rest of the world, God's government, uh, which is the chief, among the chief duties of God's people. And uh, he said to his deacon board, they wanted to paint the inside of the church, and he said, well, you fellows, he just told them up front, you fellows decide what you want to do, and then I'll do what I think. And that's the government of a tyrant. He wants a little window dressing there. Uh, like the Democrats, they want to make it look like people have a saying in what the regulations are, and they have a time to respond to the regulations that are proposed by the bureaucracy. But you and I both know, we all know, that's window dressing. It doesn't make a hill of beans what you write them back. Oh, that's, that was Ralph Winterout's thing, though. They don't even do that anymore. But even if they did, it wouldn't have made any difference. Because if a person doesn't have it in his head that God, God's government is the best government, and God's government doesn't mean, oh, we want to have moral law, like uh, the, the, the chief justice down in Alabama. He started that organization. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Roy, Roy Moore? Like, Roy Moore? Yeah, Roy. I like the fella. I, I got to know him. I interviewed him on the radio once, met him a few times at meetings. But I don't think he was a Baptist, too. And I don't think he gets it on that point. It's not about morality. God's government is not about morality. Christianity is not about morality. Not even a little bit. That's a Latin word. It, the mores. What are the mores? Well, that's just whatever people think is okay today. Whatever people think is okay today. That's morality. And that's what the word means. Whatever customs are prevalent that's what the latin word means that's what the english word means it's never meant any has nothing to do with the fixed standards of god himself but what did jerry falwell do to make it appealable the moral majority mm -hmm. what did judge moore do and i'm not criticizing him just because um he can't criticize back indeed he can but once a man shoves himself into the public eye He's open for open discussion of his points of view. 
and he's done that and he'll probably do it again. Um, he has a lot of good ideas and says a lot of good things. Probably be better than the other guy, but fundamentally, it's no accident that he's a Baptist. And so as a Baptist, when it comes to government, it's not about due process as much as it is about, well, here's the mores. You see, common law government is not about rights and wrongs and do's and don'ts, not even a little bit. It's about due process. As a matter of fact, common law is due process. It is not do not it is not the Ten Commandments. Do not covet lie, steal, commit adultery, or murder your neighbor, the last five of the Ten Commandments. It's about how do we get to that point and decide who's done that. It's no mystery to know what the standards are of right and wrong. God has given them to us as our forebears held. We don't even we're not even gonna uh, elect a legislature. We have the laws of God. What we need is juries and courts to decide who in this situation of that has violated them, and we need due process for so there's fair play. Everybody has a chance to be heard, and we don't railroad people. That's what due process is. And uh, that's what our common law is. Our common law doesn't stress uh, what ought to be done. It stresses how it ought to be done. And lawyers have lost that idea. Uh, common lawyers used to knew that, knew that, used to know that in our common law tradition. They have no cognizance of it anymore. Uh, very little, very little. I was telling somebody the other day I had a case that uh, lasted 20 years in the federal courts. 20 years. Yikes. Trying to take my client's property. And at the end of it all, finally, of course, you can't get to the Supreme Court, hardly. Chances are next to nothing. Went to the Seventh Circuit. and uh, Seven, Seventh Circuit, Chicago, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, after the arguments were over, government argued and I argued and, and, uh, I had reserved a minute or two, you know, you can reserve, if you've got 30 minutes, you can say, well, I want 15 to start. And then in rebuttal, I want another 15 or I want 28 minutes to start in rebuttal. I want two, just to make sure I answer anything that I didn't, that he said that I didn't cover. Mm -hmm. You try to preempt what they're going to cover, but I was the movement. I was the one that had appealed. So I get to have a rebuttal. So I saved a couple of minutes for rebuttal. And after the government said what they're going to say, the court said, well, Mr. Winters, uh, I mean, in light of what the government says, do you really want to even make a rebuttal? That's the attitude they had to start with. It's called bias. You see? Yeah. I said, well, yes, I do. Cause I reserved the time. And all I said was, all I said was, well, uh, this case that this court decided, and I was addressing one particular judge a long time ago, uh, upholds our position clearly. And the one thing I learned after 20 years of being on this case was that due process or time, long periods of time in the courts do not necessarily equal due process. And they didn't get, my clients did not get due process. 20 years. If they don't get a fair shake, 20 years doesn't change things. Mm. They still don't get a fair shake. Mm. What is fair play? You know, I, <laughs> something caught my eye on the internet the other day. And it was, I think the name of it was how, how Americans learn to fight dirty. It was something on YouTube, how Americans learn to fight dirty. And it was all about this guy that joined the army. He was a highly educated psychobabble kind of guy somehow. 
And he finally decided that he was going to have to teach Americans, get in the military, and teach Americans how to fight dirty when they went to the war. And so his whole idea was there are no rules anymore. Americans, being a common law country, here's what it was all about. Americans are a common law country, and we got this idea in our heads that we had when we went to school, when we were in the grades, we had this idea if two boys fought, nobody's going to let them kick the other one in the family jewels. Nobody was going to let him sucker punching going on. Nobody's going to let any, any biting, kicking, or scratching go on. And when boys would fight, we said no biting, kicking, scratching, or rabbit punching. I remember saying that. And all us boys standing around while the boys tried to settle their differences, if somebody did that, we were on him like a flock of ducks on a June bug. And that ended the matter. He was wrong. You fight dirty, you lose by default. That was our rule. But that's not Machiavellian enough. No, and the rest of the world does not have that concept in their heads. And we as Americans, we don't. We think the rest of the world's like us. They aren't. They're law of the city people. They don't think that way. The whole idea of fair play, the word fair play, you fought me a fair fight. That comes out of the English. That comes out of Britain. That doesn't come out of Europe. They, they didn't. We still, we still yeah. think like that. We still think like that. Well, this guy said, I got to teach these people how to fight dirty. And he spent his life organizing a program for the U.S. Army to teach men how to fight dirty. Was that necessary? Um, I don't think it's necessary always. I think if the other man tries to hurt you, our common law says you can meet force with force. But let's don't call it fighting dirty. Let's call it fighting according to the God's rules. And God's rules say if somebody tries to kill you, you have the the right and the duty to meet force with force. If he's trying to murder you hmm. in warfare, of course, we'd call that. We're setting, settling our differences that way. Yes. Two. So I think it's wrong to use the wrong words to describe the process. And that's what this fellow did. And there is a push on in America, has been since the beginning, to learn how to fight dirty. And that's not part of our common law tradition. It's not part of the tradition of our courts. It is contrary to our common law. It is contrary to the laws of nature's God, called our Bible, as our Declaration of 76 says. Uh, back to you, Roger. I can, I, I, well, what flashed in my mind when you were talking about that, two things. You said the uh, the Bible says if someone's – let me let me go out another direction. I just recently saw BB, I'm a yo-yo, Netanyahu. Uh, in some public situation is going, the Talmud says, he's talking about some of these adjacent strikes they've been doing over there, you know, killing their neighbors. Uh, the, the Talmud says if someone's coming to kill you, you can kill him first. Now, you just echoed the same thing out of the Old Testament. So my question is, now that we know these pastors are trying to knock us off of this vaccine, can we go after them? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the other thing well, we was... Have, we, have, we have processes in place and, and people and, and, well, and not what what not what to what not what conclusion not what result to relate to right, reach right but what process are we to use and let the god have the result well we're going to start see, a, lot, a lot of a lot of people bringing legal stuff in the you know in the immediate or near-term future on this uh -huh. go ahead sorry to interrupt i got another well, thought the law of the city is result-oriented it doesn't make right. any difference how we reach the result that the state legislation requires. It doesn't make any difference. 
Well, then, in a world like that, torture becomes legal. Yes. And it is. Mm-hmm. It's legal in those mm-hmm. countries to torture people to reach the result that the legislation, the will of the government, requires. In our common law tradition, we say we're not interested in the result. We're interested in following the process because that's the jurisdiction God gives us. And he says in the Bible, the result belongs to me. He said, you just follow the process. And if you will follow the process I give you, whether in the courtroom or whether in war, then I have already ratified the result. I already know what it is. You must follow the process. That's why he said in Matthew 18, if you follow the process where two or three of you are gathered together, if you follow this process I just gave you, the result is ratified in heaven. There it is, point blank, from the mouth of the Savior himself. Yeah, that's great. That's excellent. John here on Wisconsin. What say you uh, to the idea, and thank you for, for, for everything and Roger and expounding, and a long way around Harvey's barn. But, uh, <laughs> what, what, what say you to the fact that everyone, uh, most of us are breaking God's laws? Plain and simple. I don't care, you know. Uh, what are the first two laws? Killing an MF is like seven, I think. Honoring your mother and father is five. Uh, and as far as I see it, there's a lot of Satanists and, and quote-unquote humanists running around with masks on in the form of graven images, etc. And I don't think we're going to get any relief and remedy if we keep, uh, you know, cutting... <laughs> Cutting some slack. I mean, again, I think you pointed out clearly, and uh, I'm still reading through Genesis and the common lawyer's (laughs) version of the Bible, uh, and it's excellent. We might have to have you do an audio version uh, or consider it anyway. But anyway, I digress. But, yeah, I mean... We're breaking God's laws. I mean, I brought you out of the outhouse, the shit house of Babylon, and you, you, you know, dumb MFs are are you know going back and getting licenses and following these right. rules. And the, the, the dog always returns to its vomit, John. I mean, you know, I'm over it. I'm I'm over it. I mean, I know what the laws are, and I'm I'm obeying as best as I can every day and asking for forgiveness and repentance. Well, let me, let me back up a little bit. If I may, Roger, may I? Or, of course. Yeah. Okay. There are two things here that should be considered. Or no, must be considered. Number one, God's will is made known to us. And if any person violates God's will, that's his law, at any point, he is guilty of violating all of it and is worthy of death for having done so. That's a quote. That's a quote from the Bible. That's what Paul the Apostle says in the New Testament, and that's what God said to our grandpa Adam in the Older Testament. Is that true yet today? Yes, that is true yet today. It is an unchangeable, immutable principle of law. There is a consequence. Law never changes, or it's not law, and there is a consequence, Mm -hmm. and there's the consequence. But God has provided the remedy to that problem. He declared death to all sons and daughters of Adam from the bench with his black robe on 
And he hit the gavel and said, it's done, you're doomed. And then he stood up and he said, but you ain't going to be able to stand that. There's no way you're going to come out of that. So he took off his black robe and he walked down off the bench and he shoved us out of the way and he said, I'm going to take the bullet for you. And he became, he took on the form, the physical form of a man. And that man was what he calls his, not a son of Jesus Christ, but the unique son, the only begotten son, only in the sense, the Greek word, um, monogenic, uniquely. Not another one like him. He is God in human flesh. So the judge said, now that I've sentenced you, I will be your substitute. I will take death for you. My being God, my nature is without limit. I'm of limit, unlimited nature. My death has an unlimited worth. It is sufficient for the death of all men, but it is efficient for my elect. And you can't stand death. You can't raise yourself from the dead. I can and I'll gain the victory for you, and that's what he did. So us poor critters down here on earth, sons of Adam and daughters of Adam, are every day failing, and the Bible says every day, now that God has done that for us, his son has ascended bodily and physically back into the presence of the Father, and who is the judge, and he forever, says the Bible, makes a defense lawyer's intercession for us nonstop. And the accuser comes along and says, you're doomed. He discourages us. You know, if you were to go, this is an old analogy that preachers have been using in America for years. If you were to go, die and go to the pearly gates of the, of the celestial city of God, and Jesus Christ were there, and he said, and why should I let you in? And you said, well, I saw an angel you sent to me, and this angel told me. He said, I have given you eternal life, and that angel told me, and therefore I know that I have eternal life, and you have to let me in. And somebody else, somebody else is heard to laugh, a hearty laugh and say, ha, ha, you were stupid enough to believe that. I took on the form, I transformed myself into an angel of light and told you that. You're an idiot and drags him off to hell, screaming and kicking. And somebody else came, comes in and Jesus Christ said, why should I let you into the celestial city? And the fellow says, I saw a sign in heaven, and I knew that God was talking to me, and he spoke to me audibly, and he said, oh, oh, oh. Audibly. <laughs> audibly in my hearing. And he said, you are my son. And when you get up to the celestial city, just tell, tell me that I told you you are. And he says, you told me. I heard the voice audibly. And the devil says, ha, ha, I'm the deceiver. You're an idiot, and drags him off in despair. And somebody else comes, 
And he says, why should I let you in? He says, well, I don't know. He says, uh, I just know a long time ago, I got the idea in my head. I was looking in the book, and the book said that Jesus Christ died for sinners. And I read the verse, John three sixteen, that God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die for men who are sinners. And I, I remember reading in Ephesians where it says, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, there's nothing you can do. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man could boast. I ain't here to say I know anything except I read it in the book that if I rely on you, that you'll let me in. Well, that man gets in, and the others don't, because they rested their understanding, or that man, that one rested his understanding upon that sure word, says Peter the Apostle in his epistle. More sure than a voice, more sure, said Peter, than the audible voice that I heard from heaven when I was with Jesus Christ. I heard it. And he said, that's not as sure as this book. Rest on this book. This is recorded evidence of what happened and what the proper response is. And the devil says, the Bible says, the devil, old Satan himself, will transform himself into an angel of beautiful light and come and tell you all sorts of things. Whisper, Don't be fooled. Whisper sweet nothing. Oh, look. Yeah, oh, Lord, people, Jesus Christ said people come to him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these wonderful miracles in your name? Didn't we do this? Didn't we name do that? Didn't we go to church? Didn't we serve in the church? Weren't we this? Weren't we that? Didn't we call ourselves Christian? And he'll say, get away from me. I never knew you. That's the difference. That's the remedy for our sin. It is not that we don't sin, it is that we trust, we lean on, we rely upon God, and there's only one way to do that, and that's rely upon what he said, period. That's it. There isn't anything else. Brent. That's the answer to the question. There is no other answer. But God, fortunately for us, has given it to us. Roger, are you going to say something? Yeah, something came up this week, and I didn't want the program to get away from us, on especially this day with the significance of this comment without uh, it put, putting it in front of you and seeing what you thought. It came up, as someone said, and I got a, an email or some correspondence about it that, that buttressed it, that when Jesus was on the cross, that he didn't, he, it, it, it is a misstatement to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they say that it says, Father, do not forgive them, for they know what they do. Uh, as a person who has spent a lot of time in that book and done uh, your own translation, is that have it carry any validity? No, that doesn't carry any validity. And again, it comes down to one thing. What is the evidence of the record? Period. Mm-hmm. Now that gets into a whole, that can, that can take us into some serious, some serious effort to discover that. And of course that's a worthwhile endeavor, but in no case does God ever ask us to do anything or tell us to do anything that he, we don't do it on sufficient evidence it is not a matter of a leap of faith into the dark. As I go through the Bible, and I, I say this just as a matter of fact, it's just what I'm, I'm moved to do, it's what I do do, and I spend 
a large part of my time doing it over the last 40 years, and that's translate the Bible. And if there's anything that shouts at me on every page and from words just over and over and over again, coming at it from different directions, that it's a matter of life, God's life, the life he gives us, and the life he wants us to live is a life of evidence, knowing evidence and resting everything we do upon competent evidence. And that's what the Bible is. That's what Jesus Christ calls it. And in that particular instance of which you speak, again, how do we know well, what it is and what it isn't? It's a matter of evidence. You go to the book and you look at the evidence. And what that was as they were nailing him, driving the spikes into his feet and into his probably his wrists and the words. The Greek word refers to everything from the elbow down, but it can refer to the hands too. But traditionally, it wasn't the hands as much as it was the, the wrists. Wrist, right? They were because it held you better, and you couldn't, you wouldn't, it wouldn't tear loose. Mm-hmm. They were pounding them in, mm. and Jesus Christ said, "Father, forgive them." These boys, these these young soldiers, these teenage boys, probably we don't know, but many of them probably were. Forgive them. They don't have a clue what they're doing. Yep. And they didn't. They were just obeying orders. Now watch me. That's the difference between apostasy and non-apostasy. That's the difference between the unforgivable sin and the forgivable sin. What is it? This is a theme in the the Bible. You read about it in other places. Here's a place where Jesus Christ references it. He says, forgive these Roman soldiers. They haven't committed the unforgivable, unforgivable sin. Every prayer that Jesus Christ prayed... Being God, being one with the Father, he prayed in the will of God, and every prayer he ever prayed was answered. Uh, John 17 is a long prayer. Read it. That It was all answered. If, it, if we can't see it now, we'll see it later. And, I, yeah, let me finish this, Roger. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, go ahead. Thank you for letting me finish. But the Judaizers, the Pharisees, they had committed the unforgivable sin. And there's a distinction there between him talking about them, which he had declared them mm-hmm. unforgivable. Mm-hmm. They're the ones he called a brood of poisonous snakes. Right. Hypocrites. That means you're stage actors. That's the lowest form of life, still is, by the way, along with whores, prostitutes, hookers, and users. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's just a phrase, but I'm saying Jesus Christ distinguished between the unforgivable sin there and the forgivable sin. And he also said something, a prayer that was answered. He couldn't pray otherwise. To pray out of the will of God would be a violation of God's will. It would be sin. And Jesus Christ never committed any sins. That's an important point. People that say that, no, they're not telling the truth. Well, what what hit me right there was the the point that we're discussing as a matter of perspective, and your your answer is he was saying it to the Roman soldiers, and I think the overall uh, connotation is that that was to the Pharisees, or as I call them occasionally, the Barabbasites. Same thing. Yes, but he but the question is, it's a matter of evidence. Evidence is a matter of the writings. Uh, all final evidence is all always words and we have words here what is the antecedent of the word translated them the pronoun Mm -hmm. pronoun. Mm -hmm. father forgive them well the antecedent of any pronoun 
is always the nearest noun. Uh, what's the nearest noun given the context of the flow of the narrative of the evidence we're looking at? It's evidence. Well, that's what I have to say that that's my view on it, I guess, is what I'm trying Okay, to well, I, I, had told, I had told a couple of people that wanted to uh, get your your reaction to that a minute ago you were talking about how we think and and i run into that so much in what we do on a regular basis here this political stuff okay because it's very difficult for a lot of us to imagine that there are other people that don't think like us this is the whole approach to sun Tzu of know your enemy okay i'm gonna give you a perfect example it's happened it happened again recently and i get an email and go you know roger i've been all through this passport application and i can't see anywhere where there's a check that says i'm a u.s national and i said do you really think they've gone to all these lengths to hide this and do everything they've going to do? And in the one document where they can put that in for, have to put that information in front of people that they're going to give you a clear check mark. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, see, that's our people want to Ralph Winterroot, Perfect example. You mentioned his name earlier. Okay. Here, these people, they're going to want, I got to read it in the code. If I don't see it in the code, then I know it can't be true. And they don't know how our enemies think or how our enemies work. And that's that, that, that clear cut thinking in our people that isolate them from realizing how the world really works. You get no, what I'm saying? I mean, do you get what oh, I'm Yeah. No, certainly. I see what you're saying. It's always sleight of hand and it's it's not a it's a matter of fraud. I, I think no, it's, it's fraud exactly. Yep. Yep. I don't I don't I don't tell people learn how to think like them. I, I do not do that. I don't want I don't want to think like them. I don't want other people to think like them. I want people to know their wiles. I want people to see what fraud is, and that's what you're talking about. Exactly. And I would never, I'd never tell you to think like them, but I, I insist that you got to know how they think, or that you can't figure it out. That's the problem these people have. They don't understand. People don't think like them, and that primary thing is what they've used against us because they know that about us. Uh huh. Uh huh. But no, you and we've discussed it before, and. I just want to stress it again. I know you understand what I mean by what I said, and I understand what you mean, but I'm just trying to stress that part of it. We don't want to fall into that trap. Uh, Roger, can I look at some of these? There's a question or two here in the chat. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, please. Hey, Jansen says, Brent, I haven't read this. Let's see what this is. If you have time today, I would like you to ask you a question about child custody. Oh, no, I don't want to do that. Jensen. Uh, Jason, Jason probably he's Jason. one of our newer guys i think yeah yeah if, if you know contact uh go to the website and, and uh, bring it up and maybe there's something we can do with it but right now i'd rather not well, yeah go to the website let's see you, a lot of this came up this week and, and and i i sent the actually i sent the interview to your son caleb uh, because uh, uh, because of geographical interest, okay? It happened in Idaho, and this baby Cyrus case that I finally got the story on this week from the grandfather. Do you know anything uh -huh. about that, Brent? 
No, go ahead. Well, I, can't, I don't know if we got time to go into it now. In Idaho, there was a situation that's all over the country. The federal government pays CPS, and they pay hospitals, they pay doctors, and they pay anything to rat out even up to an 18-year-old child to the CPS, and they come grab them and put them in foster homes, basically starting a conduit of child trafficking. Okay? All right. So that came up and, and, and it was being talked about. And what it did with me uh, as to what we do here is I've always get the questions from people. I think Jason was one of them about what do I do for my minor children with this affidavit? You know, well, and uh, so it caused me to rethink that because parents could file an affidavit and get their status changed. But if they don't do it for their minor child, potentially CPS could come in and use that leverage against them. Okay, because it's against the child, not against the parents and their status. So um, uh, it has caused me to revisit that in my mind. And uh, I've come to the conclusion just in a short amount of time that if people can and mother and father both agree and they're on the same page here and they're equally yoked, that they should probably go ahead and submit some sort of a parent uh, affidavit for their children and take that possibility of leveraging their children against the parents totally out of the picture and i never have thought that before so it was it changed it changed a really basic way that i've been approaching what we do okay so it's a very interesting case and uh uh that the that's a horror story that i heard from this guy's rod his name's rodriguez it was his daughter that this happened to and uh i i mean it's it's a horror story oh there's a lot of them out there yeah, i'm to the point and try anything because the lawlessness you have a right to petition the government. That's fundamental. That's not from man. So when it comes to to filing papers in courts in any case you're having trouble with, you do what you think is right and be respectful and file and, whatever you think might work and try something new because what ought to work isn't working. Well, they had a hearing on this administrative hearing out there. I heard this through another radio program. Uh, Jim White, our buddy up in Kalispell, okay, Montana, and he had a uh-huh. show on it. And in the, in the administrative hearing, evidently it was a CPS uh, uh, a judge, if you want to quote unquote judge, administrative hearing officer, okay. And they uh-huh. came out in that hearing and said, "Baby Cyrus is the property of the state of Idaho." So that's the second time we've had that kind of a declaration. The other was last year in England. England, and this was the second time i don't have anything written on it but evidently that did come out of the trial so uh and that that's why i said you know i've had the question asked a, a whole time i've just said well i think the thing to do is go back and really firmly educate your children because when they get 18 you know how rebellious some children can be okay these days especially uh they may not want to enter an affidavit that said they're a 14th amendment citizen just to uh just to rub your nose in it okay but uh with this uh what came out in this interview it kind of changed me to rethink and revisit that and if parents are on the same page and the reason i say that is we had a situation where the the parents aren't on the same page the husband or the wife loves this wants to move forward and the other spouse doesn't well you can't i would imagine if you're going to try and submit something on the status of your child there you're going to have to have both parents in agreement unless one has clear-cut test uh, custody okay so anyway it's all these little shades of gray and that came up this week and it's been on my mind the last few days and uh anytime that i hit a of a fork in the road where i've got to go back and 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 go on a different path than i've been on all these years in this it 
kind of gets my attention, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, it, <clears throat> again, if it's something that you think might help, you never know what could happen. That's the way it should have been all along. We should have been filing papers in court that we thought would help because we believed it. And if the court wants to strike it down, you want, uh, well, you want to try to convince them, I say do it. Well, I'm not talking about a court. I'm talking about sending something in as the parents for these minor children to the Secretary of State and getting their status, even though they're minor children, straightened out. And that would take the child out of the realm of this CPS stuff, it seems like to me. Oh, I say, well, that that too. But in, also, the if you do go to court, I get your point, Roger. No, that makes good sense. But again, always... Uh, don't be tweaking anybody's noses when you do it. As, uh, as we say, people are flawed. Roger, I'd like to, no telling what they'll do, I'd like to mention one thing that's not defined, though, and that's the words in the Bible that are translated forgive. The word forgive doesn't say much, the English word. And the words in the Bible don't mean what forgive means. The words in the Bible uh, mean to lift off and take away, uh, fundamentally. Uh, God does not does not ignore sin. Say, well, I'm just going to overlook it, and you come on in. I'm going to overlook it, and you, He doesn't overlook nothing. Either you, either He pays the price for it, or you'll spend the rest of eternity paying the price for it and never getting the job done. That's the way He works. That's clearly what the Bible says. Now, again, you say I don't like that. Well, I'm not here to tell you what what you want to maybe like. I'm just saying what the book says. Um, and that's my job. Uh, either he pays for it and you accept that payment and you live under his government or you'll spend the rest of eternity paying for it, paying for your law breaking and you'll never get the job done. Just the rest of eternity. Like the fellow that got sentenced in England, I read about, not too long ago, an old man, 80-some years old, and I think he got 30 or 40 years sentence for what he did. And he said, but judge, they, well, they don't say that in England. He said, but your, 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 your worship. Your, your worship. worship. Yeah, right. Yeah, your worship. I, I, can't, I can't complete that sentence. And the judge, without missing a beat, without even acting like it was anything unusual, he said, well, just do what you can. Do what you can. In other words, you're going to die there. Well, that's the way it is when, if you don't accept the payment that God has paid for your sins, if you accept the payment that God has paid, he lifts off. That's what it means. Lift off, in a way, two things that are in, inextricably bound together. Number one, your law-breaking, your sin. Sin's an old Anglo word that means law-breaking. And the other one, which is always the present with law-breaking, is guilt, the burden of guilt. He takes both of those off. That's what forgiveness means. It does not mean he just overlooks it because he's a nice guy. He doesn't. Boy. Never has, and he never will. One of the primary wiles of our enemies, Jewish guilt. I mean, yeah, they, ta they take that and leverage it to the hilt, buddy. And the you're right. And the all the world does the all the false religions. The weapon against it is that Jesus Christ removes all sin and guilt. The Bible teaches that we all are involved in Adam's fall. 
When man beholds himself within, he feels the bite and curse of sin. When gloom, despair, and terror seize, contrite he falls upon his knees. Only then breaks for him the light of day. Only then the gospel may have sway. Only then will he see Christ, the Son, who for us all things have done, the law fulfilled, the debt is paid, death overcome, the curse allayed, hell destroyed, the devil bound, grace for us with God hath found. For Christ, the Lamb, and here's that word translated forgive, removes Hold it. Okay, I don't know what's happening here. I don't ever. Is anybody hearing me? What in the Sam heck is going on here? Can you guys hear me? Hello? Hello? Are we on the air? Hello? Okay. I I have no idea. Hello? Can anybody hear me? Hello? 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 It's taken off. Back to you, Roger. I just, I, I've just totally lost contact with you guys for a couple of minutes, and I have no idea why. Okay? So I'm glad you Roger, can... Roger, did I lose you? Yeah. Are, can you not hear me now? 
Well, somebody text and say. Okay, all right. Can you hear me now? Well, I got you. Right. Okay, I don't. I have no idea what happened. Everything just went void blank for me. I couldn't get my mouse to work, my magnifier, which means I can't see anything, and all of that stuff. So anyway, uh, ho- uh, hopefully everybody else wasn't disconnected, and we've continued on. So anyway, sorry for that. I have no idea what happened. And there's well, our whistler, so we're over anyway. So yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, you never, you never can expect what's going to happen in live broadcasting. Okay, that's one oh, of the exciting it, parts of it, I guess. Brent, thank you so much. I hope everybody got something out of today's program, and uh, I have no idea what happened there. Hopefully, it doesn't happen again, though. Um, I've got a dental appointment at twelve thirty, so I'm going to have to dart out of here. I can't even upload the show right after, which I like to do. I'll get that later today. I did get the Wednesday show straightened out, and Wednesday show is uploaded in Wednesday slot. For those of you who brought that to my attention, thank you. I'll get this one from today uploaded later when I get back from my little dental uh, soiree I've got. And uh, Brent, thank you very much. We'll see you on Sunday after Thumper, and uh, I'll. Uh, we've got a replay on sunday night because it is easter on rbn and for those of you who may be new and haven't heard it they're going to replay that interview from january 5th with tom d which i thought was a very good basic interview so if your friends or whatever haven't been turned on to this they can tap into that sunday night at republic broadcasting at five central six eastern otherwise than that brent thanks very much have a good easter weekend and uh, i will see you next week and we'll see the audience either sunday after thumper or monday here same place same time have a a peaceful and uh reflective easter weekend on what this is all about okay thank you roger all right all right kids i'll see you all right i'll see y'all soon we just got knocked off the server and i got a jet because of this appointment